Hello, listeners. This is a special bonus crossover episode with Fresh Text, a lectionary podcast. Now, those of you who've been listening for a while now to Queen of the Sciences know that there is almost nothing that elicits greater ire out of me than the revised common lectionary. So you may be shocked, shocked, I say, to find me moonlighting with a lectionary podcast. But if you're going to do the lectionary, you ought to do it with John Drury of Fresh Text. John and I were graduate school classmates and have recently revived our old habit of great discussions by digging into scripture together for his podcast. This is a particularly outsized episode on John chapter 11, the Lazarus story, but we found so much to share with each other, we couldn't rein it in. So if you're looking for preaching inspiration or want better preparation for Sunday worship at a lectionary church, then this podcast is a great resource for you. Have a look. And now... Take it away, John. Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but... Uh, equipping, especially for uh, pastors and teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons uh, in the upcoming weeks or whenever they stumble onto this uh, show at a given time. Uh, I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Sarah Henlicky Wilson. Uh, Sarah is a, a semi-regular guest here on the show. Every time I have her on, I'm like, why do I not have her on more? We just have a blast when we interpret scripture uh, together. A couple things just to know about uh, Sarah, things you can follow. One is uh, she has a newsletter called Theology and a Recipe. Uh, sign up for that. It's great. She has a recent novel that's come out on, you can find it on Amazon and every other place where you can buy books. It's called A Tumbling Down, A Tumbling Down. And then her podcast is called Queen of the Sciences, which she does with her um, father, who's also a theologian. And the two of them discuss uh topics and, and texts and it's a great it's a great show so uh yeah check out all those things out but first uh check out this very episode where we discuss john chapter 11 verses 1 through 44 john chapter 11 verses 1 through 44 the famous lazarus story we had a blast uh, discussing this text so hope that you'll enjoy it uh as much as we did and uh, find some uh, guidance here as well if you're enjoying the show today, and uh, I encourage you to press the share button on your podcast player app, and you can pass it along to others so they'll find out about the show as well. Word of mouth is the best way to get the show around to others, so we'd love it if you'd be willing to do that. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text, and there you can find ways to support the show. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. Okay, so John chapter 11, monster passage, but you kind of need it all. I didn't translate 45. <laughs> you translate the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah, I always whenever I talk to you as Mike, I know. To like revive my Greek. Yeah, so, was... and there's cool stuff you find when you do that. So Absolutely. Well, let's let's hear yours then. Let's do it. Okay. John 11, 1 through 44. Okay, here it is. This is Sarah's idiosyncratic translation. So, here we go. 
There was a certain sick man, Lazarus from Bethany, from the town of Mary and Martha, his sisters. And Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with myrrh and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one you love is sick. But Jesus, hearing, said, This sickness is not toward death, but for the sake of the glory of God, in order that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that he was sick, then even so, he stayed in the place where he was two days. Afterwards, after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, now the Judeans are seeking to stone you, and you want to go down there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, for he sees the light of the world. But if someone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. He said these things, and after this he said to them, Lazarus, our friend, has fallen asleep, but I go in order to awaken him. Therefore the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he can be saved. But Jesus meant concerning his death. But those ones supposed that it was concerning his sleeping of sleep that he spoke. Therefore, then, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus died. And for your sake, I rejoice that, in order that you might believe I was not there. But let's go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his co-disciples, Let's go us too, in order that we might die with him. Therefore, Jesus, having come, found him already having four days in the tomb. And Bethany was near to Jerusalem, about fifteen stadia. So many of the Judeans had come to Martha and Mary in order that they might console them concerning the brother. Therefore, when Martha heard that Jesus is come, she went to meet him. But Mary was sitting down in the house. Therefore, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. And now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, although he may die, will live. And all the living and believing in me will not die forever. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ and the Son of God who is coming into the world. And having spoken this, she left and called Mary her sister secretly and said, The teacher is at hand and calls for you. And that one, when she heard it, stood up quickly and went to him. Jesus, not yet having come into the town, but was still in the place where Martha went to meet him. The Judeans, therefore, that were with her in the house and were consoling her, seeing that Mary quickly arose and came out, followed her, supposing that she was departing to the tomb in order to weep for him. Therefore, Mary, when she went where Jesus was, seeing him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, Jesus, when he saw her weeping and the Judeans coming with her weeping, he groaned in spirit and troubled himself and said, where did they put him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Therefore the Judeans said, see how he loved him. Some of them said to them, couldn't this one who opened the eyes of the blind have done something in order that this one may not have died? Therefore Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay in front of it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead one, said to him, Lord, he stinks already, for it's been four days. Jesus said to her, 
Didn't I say to you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Therefore, they took away the stone. Then Jesus took away his eyes above and said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I know that you always hear me, but on account of the crowd around, I said this, in order that they might believe that you hear me. And him having said these things, he cried out in a big voice, Lazarus, hither, out. The one who had died came out, wrapped from foot to hand in grave clothes, and his face wrapped up in a towel. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him depart. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to Thanks God. Be God. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we have nowhere else to go because you have the words of eternal life. And so as we contemplate the words of this story, as they've been handed on to us, the words that you've spoken, the word that you just are, uh, we ask that you would guide our tongues, guide our minds, that they might follow your word, carry your word for the sake of those listening in and all those whom you've entrusted their care. So make us all into faithful bearers of your word for the sake of your glory. We ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much for reading. I always love your translations. They bring out all kinds of little juicy things. Can I start there and just ask a couple questions? And it'll yeah. help you maybe get to your things that you were noticing. Um, you may have things you want to draw attention to instead. But one is in verse 15, where the word order in the original is kind of funky and most translations mm. kind of fix it, theoretically fix it to make it make sense. But I think yours, you put it, and you know, and I rejoice that you know, in you, order that you. you might believe I was not there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it just says in, you know, I, that you might believe that I was not there. <laughs> it's strange, you know, and a yeah. lot of translations kind of move it around to say, and I rejoice for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. So I mean, you have the advantage of actually following the text as it actually appears. <laughs> but then what does that mean? What does it mean that they believe that yeah, that he, that he so, was not there or something like that? Just walk me through kind of how to make sense of that sentence. It's actually a little more obscure than I think I've realized before today. Well, I think – so he's he's interrupting. He said, I'm rejoicing. So it, clearly he's rejoicing that he wasn't there. And in, in normal English, we'd say, because then that gives them a chance to believe. But so I think the fact that it interrupts it in the middle in order that you might believe like heightens the significance of believing. But then usually in a, a rhetorically where the sentence ends is where the like the the big surprise or the hit is. I was not there. And actually, of all the things I noted that I want to talk about, I didn't think of this one, but I suddenly am thinking now, Jesus, a few chapters on, is going to say, it's to your advantage that I go away, that the Spirit might come. So is this Bingo. already like a foreshadowing that Jesus not being there can be a plus rather than a minus? Yeah, and it even goes with rejoicing, which is a recurring theme even in that, in those final discourses where it's all about, yeah. if you really loved me, if you really believed in me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the right. Father, right? So right. it's even that yeah. same terminology. Yeah. And in a resurrection story. Exactly. Sort of. Is it a resurrection story? We'll get to yeah, that later. Get that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So, no, that's that's very helpful. Just kind of moving the kind of, it's almost like I rejoice for your sake. So you'll believe that I was not there is almost how you can kind of 
get the pauses of it. Okay. That's very helpful. No. And those connections are interesting. I mean, there's a thousand things we could talk about, but I wanted to ask you just a couple choices that at hand was super cool. In verse 28, the teacher is at Mm. hand and he's calling Mm. you Mm. for para estin or this is where the word parousia comes from the parousia. Oh, I missed that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. If you put estin in the, you know, if you put it in the, it's uh, oh, the infinitive right. is Usia. That's right, <laughs> right, right. So that's where that term comes from. So if it was a, you know, so he's arrived, but I actually at hand is really nice because it brings out the, the eschatological flavor of the story. Like he's arriving, right? He delayed, he wasn't there. You know, I mean, it's very, you can feel, you know, the energy of, you, you can tell why this story was handed on, not just the result, but even the details of the, yeah. You, know, you can almost imagine early Christians and their family members dying and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And someone's saying, well, let me tell you this story of you know, when someone died. You know what I mean? Like you can almost yeah. feel the, the connection with the waiting for the, the final coming. Yeah. Um, but I love that hand because it kind of had that kingdom flavor. And then one I wanted to ask you about, if you have think there's any significance, is 41, verse 41. Mm-hmm. So therefore, oh, yeah. they took away they- the stone. And Jesus and, took away his eyes. Whoa, that was weird. Yeah, I never noticed that before. I know. I know. Like that that's that's the, the argument for doing the Greek. Like for me, it slows me down to notice things I don't otherwise notice in English, but also you find these weird word connections. It's the same verb. Took away the stone, took away his eyes. He took his eyes up, right? So the stone goes away. Jesus' eyes go up. But yeah, it's the same verb. I don't know if that's just it may not mean anything at all, but it couldn't help but notice with them right next to each other. Yeah. So to like take the Greek geeking up a notch, you know, sometimes it's just a coincidence because words have multiple meanings and you don't always intend a connection. However, this is not the standard because, because lifting up the eyes to heaven is an idiom that appears throughout, you know, Greek literature and throughout the gospels and in, even in the gospel of John. And it's usually a different verb. Mm. Uh, So like, I mean, you know, Verse, you know, chapter 17 has the same phrase, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven, but it's a different verb there. Right. Paras. So I kind of, you know, took his eyes to heaven, maybe, mm. I guess, but I, I don't know. It feels intentional, right? There's these two mo- movements, right? Yeah. Right, Stone right. away, eyes up. I don't know. I, I think it's drawing our attention to it. Right. And also eyes are specifically mentioned earlier. The one who could heal the eyes of the blinds, couldn't he have done something to prevent this man from dying? So it seems like eyes matter somehow. Yes. Oh, I didn't even think about that. And that's almost depending on how you think of it, but that's, that's a very, the fact that the, the question is asked there, it's kind of a climax moment, right? It's when the tension's at the highest. Yeah, you, know, you yeah. don't know what's going to happen. It's right before it, and it's well, surrounded. People have been complaining all along, right from the beginning. You know, like why isn't Jesus going? And then the sisters twice say, "If you had been here, my brother would not have died." And then finally, the crowd is also like everyone is so disappointed and frustrated with Jesus through this. Th- Thomas has a good moment, which um, you know redeems him for his later. Well, I don't. I actually think Thomas is absolutely essential later on in his doubt. I think he's done a horrible disservice in the history of interpretation, but we'll save that one for another time. But here, here, Thomas, I think shines. Yeah, right. Everyone's asking 
why. Yeah, you're right. Thomas is one of the, you know, and he, and you know, they all get their little moment, you know, Martha kind of gets her little belief moment, you know, Mary gets a, you know, it's a beautiful scene of connection and love weeping at his, you know, anticipating what we're going to see later with her at his feet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they have their moments of connection with Jesus, but generally they're like, yeah, why is he not here? And, and that eyes line in verse 37 is surrounded by this twice repeated statement that he's groaning in himself mm, mm-hmm. and he, he stirred up himself, uh, disturbed troubled himself, himself, troubled himself. The, yeah. the kind of reflexive construction there is bizarre. Yeah. You know, yeah, again, that's one that translations like, usually smooth out because it's right. You know, strange. Yeah. I mean, it, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know the nuance well enough, but it's almost like Jesus has a pang of conscience. You know, this was necessary for the glory of God, but sometimes the glory of God causes a lot of pain, which I think is a pretty legitimate complaint on the part of the sisters here. Yeah. And may imply a little bit of a, he's, you know, willingly, willfully letting, he's letting the the disturbance in, right? Because up to this moment, yeah. before her seeing her weep, he's Jesus can come off a little stoic in this passage, like, <laughs> right? Like, like until cool. he weeps, <laughs> right, right. But in that moment, if you zoom in on the weeping, then this is like a story of great kind of human humanness of Jesus, right? Yeah. But like, if you zoom out, right, it doesn't feel like a lot of pathos for the first thirty-three verses. He's kind of like, no, this is all the plan. This is, yeah. I'm glad that he died. Like, dude, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really think. That. I'm just saying, like, there's at least an element of, okay, he's kind of letting it in in this moment. You know, yeah. well, I mean, that. this maybe we we should probably save the super theological stuff for later. But just in response to that, like, there is this, I think temptation to conflate providence with a kind of stoic detachments. And, you know, if one of these things this passage is doing is saying, yes, there is providence, but yes, you can be unhappy about it and be pained by it. And even Jesus can be pained. I mean, this is Jesus who's heading to the cross before long. I think, you know, instead of like so often providence is used as a way of like controlling other people's emotions as well as your own. And I think this is showing like, And weirdly enough, you can have it both ways. You can have, you can have the God with the plan and you can still be pained by it. I think that could be very helpful pastorally to people. No, I'm, I'm glad you went there because actually I think I want to track, retract my statement that he comes off stoic earlier. You can interpret what he's saying in that kind of stoic way. You know what I mean? But it, it it doesn't have to be taken that way because really, yeah. But how could, how could we not regard so much. I mean, if we're going to have a doctrine of providence, a strong doctrine of providence, how could we not regard Jesus as being cold and stoic? Like, yep, it's a good thing he died. And yep, I'm going to die too. Like, how could we not react with kind of moral horror at times to this? So uh, yeah, there's a kind of complex playing out here and, and giving the the mourners so much time to speak is is pretty tremendous in a gospel where Jesus does a lot of talking. Oh yeah, you're so right. I mean, this is when I just kind of think of John as a storyteller, and of course, this is the kind of final sign because, you know, by chapter 12, we're kind of transitioning into the, and this is the last straw. This, you know, they decide to, they, they have their meeting at the end of, end of uh, chapter 11 to kind of have their final decision to put him to death and all right. that. Right. So I've always thought of this as a culminating point, but just thinking of him, just thinking of John as like, or as a, as a writer, as an author, you know, who's kind of putting this gospel together. Right. 
there's this pattern. A lot of, when you say Jesus does a lot of the talking, right? A lot of the earlier sequences, you get a sign and then a discourse kind of after like almost commenting mm. on the sign, right? So like, uh, I'm thinking of especially chapter. Well, I'll, I'll just do them all for fun. Okay. Uh, like, so chapter three, the Nicodemus, that's our first long dialogue and discourse, right? And the signs there is kind of linked a little bit with his clearing of the temple. And then the conversation with the woman of the well, right? You kind of get that one contract is kind of set next to that one. We just did those on the show a couple weeks ago. And then in chapter five and in six, you get the healing of the lame man in five and the first like 10 verses kind of reads like a standard healing story. You know, if you mm -hmm. pulled that out, it works like a healing story in Mark or Luke or whatever. And then you mm -hmm. kind of get this like Johannine Jesus, like commenting on it after. Right? And then you do the same with chapter six, you get the feeding of the 5,000 and then this right. long, right. But then in nine, it starts to get really clever. Cause in, in chapter nine, there's the, he heals the blind man. And then there's this whole back and forth where the blind man right. gets in trouble and comes back. So that one's even a little bit more, has more drama in it. But then this one is just a masterpiece because the sign happens at the end of the story instead of the beginning. Uh, like you can't separate it out. It's, I mean, I'm not trying to say like John was sitting down and like getting better as he wrote the gospel. I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't want to be like that ridiculous, but there is a kind of, it's just a but, masterwork chapter 11 because you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't pull the sign story out. Mm. You couldn't pull the healing out and stand on its own and compare it to right. a gospel version of that, like in a synopsis or something. You couldn't right. even do that. The whole thing is just woven in, like you said, to all these other characters. He has these scenes with each character back and forth with the disciples, with Thomas, with Martha, with Mary, and then the, the Judeans. Like, it's just brilliant. So I think it's really actually significant that it he changes the order of events here so that it ends with the sign instead of beginning with the sign. That can't be accidental. But just the way you were describing it brought back to mind one thing that I really noticed, especially having to slow down to translate this, is how staged it is. Like, I was so noticing this time how the position of everybody is really important. So of course there's the position of Jesus far away and then coming into Bethany, but then where everybody is. So like Martha comes out, but it says specifically Mary was sitting in the house. And then when Martha comes to get her, then she stands up and it's aneste, like rises up, you know, which is the same root verb as resurrection, which also can't be accidental. And that's just where everybody is positioned and the stone and even the eyes, it's a very, it feels uh, theatrical. And I don't mean that in any way as a, as an insult, but like the relationality and positioning of all the characters and locations in the story is integral to the story. And John really wants you to know where everybody is vis-a-vis -vis everyone else as the story unfolds. No, I think that's spot on. And I, another thing that just makes it a total kind of dramatic masterpiece. Yeah. Just totally unfolded. Everything's intertwined. All the theology is kind of more embedded in a dialogue than in a discourse. I mean, he, he makes some important statements, but their significance or their punch is because of the way it's going off of theological statements that the other characters are making. Yeah. You know. Whereas by contrast, just a couple of weeks ago in, in Bible study, we've been working through the gospel of John at church and we read straight through chapters 16 and 17 of John. And when we were done, I asked people to raise their hands if they had trouble 
paying attention all the way through. <laughs> Most everybody admitted that their their attention wandered. And I was like, yep, yeah, me too. <laughs> but like with John 11, you never lose track of what's happening just because of the the staging, the the dialogical rather than discourse nature. You, you don't lose it. No, I think that's spot on. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore it some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Sarah Henlicky wilson and we are looking at John chapter 11, the famous Lazarus, Mary, and Martha story. Uh, so, yeah, you mentioned on the break a couple word observations you wanted to highlight. So go ahead and all right, uh, we can do take these us through quicker, those. Yeah, quicker or slower as you like. So first in chapter two, it specifies Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with myrrh. And, um, you know, myrrh is one of the gifts of the Magi in Matthew's story. It is a burial ointment or spice or something. And I was just, just because, um, I was, was preaching on this story the, this spring also, um, in Luke, it's nard and in Matthew, it's ointment and in John, it's myrrh. <laughs> so the, they all, and of course, John is the one who specifies that it's Mary of Bethany, whereas in Mark, Matthew and Luke, and I think in Mark, it's an unspecified, unnamed woman. Matthew and Mark, it's around this time and in Bethany. So it's the same town, but Luke's right. got it in that other, he's got it like happening way earlier. It's a whole. Yeah. And it's, in Luke, it's a sinful thing. woman. In yeah. Matthew, it's not a sinful woman. It's, it's just not a in, woman. and it's not in Bethany. It's way earlier in the story. It's like back in yeah. chapter seven. So it's a yeah. whole other question. Anyway, <laughs> myrrh. I just think myrrh, myrrh that's cool. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then I translated Udioi as Judeans instead of Jews. And this yes. also, like I mentioned, I've been doing this Bible study on the Gospel of John. And once you become sensitized as a Christian to the horrible, horrible, deep legacy of anti-Judaism with a bridge over into anti-Semitism in Christian history, you know, you, you got to find ways to deal with it. And the Gospel of John, all the historical context setting and everything, but if you just simply read the Jews, then you know, in my experience, modern day Gentiles, no matter where in the world they are, think it means like rabbinic Jews of today of an ethnic character and do not recognize that like everybody in the story is a Jew. So I think I, I have read that um, Judean is a legitimate way of approaching this word. And obviously it has the same roots. So that's why I, I opted for Judeans there. Yeah. And conveniently in the Greek, there is a little D hiding in there. So uh, yeah, I, mean, it, yeah. I mean, it is, I mean, when Judea is mentioned and he, and the tensions that Jesus has are almost entirely when he's in Judea and his only major moment of like intense conflict with quote Jews is in chapter six up in Galilee. But there it's Judeans that are talking to him or Jews, you know, which right. kind of is out of place. So, and he of course gets called a Jew or a Judean by the Samaritan woman in chapter four and he doesn't contest it. But of course, he was coming from Judea when he came there, you know. So to her, it's all the same. Oh, Judean right, Galilee, right. whatever. All the people who think that you're real and we're not, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that you're. And he is secretly divisions. wink, wink, a Judean because he's from. Beth he was born in Bethlehem, you know. That's right, another, right. and that comes up though. Like, where was he really born in chapter seven and eight? You know. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. The Messiah can't come from Galilee. Wink, wink. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I've even noticed like, more recently in the synoptics, you know, like Jesus conflict, like he argues with Pharisees, but they're like not the bad guys. Like other Galilean Jews argue with him, but they don't hate him. It's clearly focused on the temple authorities, which makes them like super Judean Jerusalem Jews, not just any kind of Jew. So again, specifying where the extreme conflict lies, I think is just a little helpful as well as addressing our contemporary issues. No, I think it's a good choice, both for the text itself. And I've tried to do it where I translate it Judeans every time, and it really helps. You can do it almost every use. There's a couple funky ones, but it it can work in John and actually makes a little more sense. And it fits the geography of the way that John's working, where Jesus is always kind of going back and forth to Judea. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of actually starts to illuminate things a little bit. Because I know sometimes people say the Jewish leaders, you know, but that's that really is adding more detail than's there. You yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought that was a good choice. Anything else? Just little oh, yeah. word observations you want to highlight? Yeah, just a couple things in verse 12. The disciples say, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he can be saved. My translation, by like official one, said recover. But this is definitely the save verb. So I know it can mean healed. But, um, you know, I think it's always worth noting when that pops out. And then in the next verse, those ones supposed it was concerning his sleeping of sleep. It's two different words, but I just thought it was really funny that in, in English, we have to use the same word. Uh, and the second word is hypno, like hypnotism. I had never made that connection before. So that that's just fun, weird Greek. Oh, yeah. No, that was fun. The, the rest of I'm trying to I'm gonna see what I've got translation here that I'm trying to remember what it did. Is that 14? 13. Yeah, taking rest and sleep. I like sleeping. Sleeping sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a kick out of that one. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and then in 17, the word for tomb is menemeon, which is the same root as the word for memory. So a tomb is also a memorial place. I don't draw anything profound out of that, but I just thought that was an interesting choice of word. In the memorial. And yeah, he was already that, in the memorial. Yeah. Was that the word used of the tomb in the in Jesus' own burial story? Or I didn't even think to look. Let's double check. We got time. We're doing live exegesis here, people. (laughs) All right. So it'd be end of chapter 19, early 20. Yep. Same one. Same one. Okay. All right. So. So that adds all sorts of interesting resonances to do this in remembrance of me, right? Yeah. We uh, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Interesting. Okay. So anyway, yeah, so we'll we'll meditate on that one for future. Okay, and then I just have two until more he comes, until he's at hand. Until he's at <laughs> hand, right. Okay, and then two more things. Num- uh, verse 27. I do not know if this is significant. I want to know what you think. She said to him, "Yes, Lord, I believed." It's pepistuka, it's in the perfect. So, my understanding, perfect means it's perfected, completed action. It's not like ongoing, like I have believed and I'm continuing to believe. It sounds to me almost like I did believe that you are the Christ and the son of God coming into the world, but now my brother's dead and I'm really mad and I'm not sure I believe in you anymore. Like, is that the undercurrent there? What do you think? Oh, that would be fun. No, I don't think so. I think perfect tense in Greek implies a continued action, right? So the favorite. It can, it yeah, can it, imply continued, even though it's perfect. Yes. 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 So it, oh, it's misleading because of the way bummer. we use perfect tense in English, but like the best illustration of it would be like, I got married. Right. So that's like mm-hmm. a thing that happened in the past, but I'm still married. Right. Oh, and so okay, actually sure. a lot of, you'll start to notice that a lot, sometimes perfects are even translated as present tense. 
because oh, okay. in context, the, the English here is just not going to hear it right. So yeah, I certainly I mean, didn't. So thank you. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's okay. But I still think it's, I mean, you, you couldn't do it just out of the tense, but I, I've, I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this perfect tense here because mm. on one level, if this was a moment of belief, like, ah, because you just taught me now I believe mm. that happens all the time. I mean, it just happened in chapter nine with the blind man. I'm double check this claim here, but yeah, he, he believes, right? Uh, let's look at it. He said to them, yeah, and he worshiped, I believe Lord, and he worshiped him. That's chapter nine, verse 38. So present tense, right? So he's having a dialogue and the blind man's clearly he's believing for the first time in that moment, present tense, right? right? So I think you're, you're on to something, just not in maybe the way that you put it. I, mm. I mean, maybe it is, we can argue about it if you want, but it's, it's, I have believed, but not in the sense of uh, like, it'd be a pluperfect that would be in the past that would be then no longer right, relevant right, now. Okay. So it would still be true that she believes, but it is kind of, I don't know. So it's more I don't like she's it's, saying, I've been believing in you all along. Yeah. So and which so could maybe be, it just kind of leaves it hanging. Like, yes. It's even a little defensive, like maybe, <laughs> I mean, it depends. I, I mean, it depends how you read Martha as a character given, right. I mean, how much should we draw on the material from Luke for Mary and Martha? But if you do like, right. eh, I could see a little, like he asks, cause he doesn't ask her, do you believe in me? Interestingly, right. which is normally right. what he does. He draws attention. He right. asks, do you believe this? Right. 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 And she doesn't say, yes, I believe that she says, yes, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God and the one who's coming to the world. I mean, it's a great statement of belief. I'm not diminishing it at all. Right. It's actually a really instructive and maybe where we might want to even consider going homiletically to Mm. say like, what does it mean when Jesus is trying to like get you to see something new and you still don't see it yet? She is reaching for the right thing. Well, I've Mm. been believing in you and I still am, but. not necessarily a statement of yes i sign off on your new on this new teaching right right right, i don't know so it seems like the in the context what's interweaving here is like she she has always been believing in jesus and she's always been believing in the resurrection and even when he says i'm the resurrection she's like yes you're the christ you're the son of god but somehow something is missing from the whole confession or the story and you know i as we were talking i was thinking like is this really a story about grief more than it's a story about coming back from the dead i mean obviously it's that and we'll, we will get to whether or not this is a legit resurrection but if this is really a story about or not really if this one of the things happening here is this is a story about grief interacting with faith and you know when do people most often have their faith shattered it's grief like you know for myself my first huge whacking loss of faith was when my grandmother died and shouldn't have you know for complicated reasons you know like Grief undermines faith almost more than anything else. So maybe there it, that's the, the significance of it not being a simple present tense. Yes, I'm believing right now, but I have believed. But ouch, yes. I hurt. Yes. My brother's dead. In a way, the Greek perfect tense is kind of just exactly what we need in a time of grief, right? Well, right. what have I believed? Okay, I'll just cling to that right now at least. <laughs> right. But expecting an aha moment, you know. Of course, it's very on, it's very on brand that, of course, Mary doesn't have any of this dialogue, right? She just mm. says the same she, thing. I the only thing she says, yeah, the only, oh, yeah, <laughs> walk me through. <laughs> 
well, she's in the house, right? She's she won't come out. Oh, she's I love sitting it. Down, like it makes a point of saying she is sitting down in the house. Yes, and I just see her with her arms crossed, and she was like, "That's it, you know." Yeah, sure. He loves us. He said that, you know. And obviously, they they call out the fact that Jesus has a love for these three siblings. That's more than the love he talks about in chapter thirteen. You know, for his disciples, there's some very distinctive, unique kind of relationship that's happened here, and I feel like. She's saying, I, you know, I'm just done. You've betrayed me. And so Martha being more confrontational is like, all right, you know, if you'd been here, but Mary won't even come out. And it's only when, when Martha's like, come on, come on, talk to him. You know, you need to work it out with him. And Mary's just like, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Like less confrontational. More same solid. exact line. It's the same, the same line. exact line. I never realized. How did I never realize it's the exact same line twice. And then that's it. She, she just says the line from her sister and then. Mm. Does it say she's weeping at his feet or just falling at his feet? I'm trying to remember. Uh, In 32. See. She fell at his feet saying to him. Mm-hmm. That's it. No, she. it's it's the, yeah. no, then the next verse, Jesus sees her weeping. So it's like she says this Got and then it. she's done. Nothing else, just just weeping. It's so on brand. She's at his feet, which is where we saw her before. Right, right. Uh, at his, you know, in Luke chapter 10, listening yeah. to the word. And again, a more... Uh, more confrontational oh, she, Martha. She wipes his. And then, yes. Yeah, she wiped his feet with her hair. In, in verse two, it specifies at, at his feet. Right and there. that hasn't happened yet. That's not till chapter 12, which is kind yeah, of right. weird that you just kind of. <laughs> but again, we know, I mean, there's obviously this is a, fa- that's a famous story. So it's right. kind of like, well, you all know that story. She's that one. Yeah. We'll get oh, to yeah, that I'll later. Tell you, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how I interpret that. Otherwise it's just like yeah. a storytelling flub. To mention right, right. that now, I think. Yeah, yeah. But as as it says in Matthew and Mark, you know, this story will be told everywhere the gospels preach. Right, so it's kind of. Right, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, boy, the, I love this character stuff. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, and then just one last Greek thing that's cool, and then uh, we can go on to more theological interpretation. In forty three, when Jesus cries out in a big voice, Lazarus, it's actually there's no imperative verb; it's two adverbs. Hither. Out and yes. I just thought that was kind of cool. It's like it's not even it grammatically a command. It's just like yeah. out, out. Oh, you're right. Here, I've never here. noticed no, that not, before. But not come here, but just you know, and we don't use it anymore in English. Hither, but hither in English is the is the movement version of here. You know, here can be like in German, you still have to make this distinction, but in English, here covers both in place here and movement toward here. So. Hither, useful word that we don't use anymore. Hither out. Hither and thither. Right? Yeah, Whence yeah, right, and right. wither. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's really good. My my gut tells me, and I'd have to look this up because I don't know. My Aramaic and Hebrew is terrible, but my gut tells me that this is this probably has some mm. Aramaic idiom that's just kind of made its way into the Greek here, but I'd have to check it. That's just yeah. pure that's pure gut. That's the don't take that to sure. the bank. But um, any listeners who know their Aramaic, look that up, but, okay. <laughs> um, well, you know, like behold, or here I am mm. is, is a thing in, right. In, right. Uh, that's also made its way into the Greek new Testament. But anyway, that's just, some, that's a little, uh, you know, something to look up later, but well, let, let's give it a couple minutes now and then we can come back to it again after the break if we need to, but let's just get started on that question. So what kind of action is this we just call it the resurrection of lazarus or the raising of lazarus 
But of course, that verb is not used, is it? And actually, as is often the case in all miracle stories, especially the Johannine ones, often the miracle happens like almost off screen or like Mm kind of, or like maybe not off screen, but it's like, you know, you think of a movie director will kind of, you know, where the focus of the lens is on versus kind of in the background in the haze. Mm -hmm. The actual miracles happen, you know, like, like with the, he turns the water into wine and it's like, you don't have, he doesn't touch it and do, you know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. They, you don't know what moment between when they drew the water and the master <laughs> yeah. ceremony. We don't know. Or the, yeah. the breaking of the bread. We don't see like how that plays out. The mechanics of the miracle are often either off screen they, or they don't care. They just don't it care. It seems intentional. Just that yeah. doesn't matter. His words, his actions, especially in John, his words, right. Are kind of more mm. central. So I bring that up to say like, there's not, you know, he doesn't, raise him in the sense of just the way the story is narrated. It's just narrated as as him praying. And even his prayer is not asking him to raise him. It's like, he's already been raised, I guess, maybe when he (laughs) prays it, or he's like, I'm not saying this for me, but for everyone listening in. (laughs) And you get the vibe that Lazarus is apparently is already up. He doesn't say Lazarus rise up. You're right. (laughs) Lazarus, Come on out. out. Since you are up. Come out of there I'm not, already. I'm not, I, I don't know how long he's been up, but it could have been a minute. Yeah. It could have been. Yeah. At what moment does it happen? You know, right, even right. the stench kind of implies like, oh, don't open the throat, you know, as if he's already like, no, 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 he's already up. I already did it on the way here. Maybe. I don't know. I, I'm not trying to imply anything. I don't really know. I wasn't there, but. I just want to say the King James is best here because she says he stinketh. <laughs> he stinketh. <laughs> Uh, it's already been suddenly grieving grieving uh what is it is it mary or martha martha suddenly grieving martha is all practicality like okay like i'm really sad about my brother but lord he stinketh (laughs) on brand right everything (laughs) we know about martha (laughs) fits that on she is true to character in that moment right totally i need my i need my sister to help me in the kitchen i need my brother to stop smelling bad Yeah, but so I mean, I, I'm just I'm just starting with the the technicalities of the language, but I'm sure there's a deeper theological question that you're kind of pressing here. What does it mean to talk about this as healing, saving, raising? Uh, you're you're getting at something there yeah. when you brought it up. So, like, okay, so in 23, Jesus says to Martha, "Your brother will rise again," and that's the anesthemi verb it's all it's all anesthemies here there's no egeros so like uh, the the synoptics use egero language but john much prefers the yes and anyway and then she says i know he will rise in the resurrection in the last day the question is when when jesus says this is he you know baiting her sounds mean but you know like she she gets it and i think uh, this is also like where the there's the pastoral comfort for grieving people now like yes i believe that my departed loved ones will rise on the last day and i'll see them then but what the heck am i supposed to do in the meanwhile so she's like she has that she doesn't despair as those who have no hope but it's not helpful to her now and then jesus says i am the resurrection and life super famous you know the i am passage the one who believes in in me although he may die will live. So Jesus is granting that even the people who believe will die. It's not avoidance of death. So still, you yes, know, yes. He's, he's connecting her already existent resurrection hope to himself, but it's still not solving her problem right now. And then he goes on and all those who live and believe in me will not die 
forever. But that again is presumably after the resurrection. And do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe. But that's like, so that's the whole discussion around the resurrection, but it's completely inconclusive where Lazarus right now is concerned. Yeah. So Jesus asserts himself as the, as the subject of these statements. He's the one who's going to, you know, he's the mediator of this resurrection life. And you, in some sense, already have it now. I think he is nudging her towards that. But it doesn't mean that these aren't still directed towards a final resurrection. It, some people sometimes will interpret it that way. Like, he's trying to say, don't think about the resurrection at the end. Think about the life you have now. But actually, when you read the passage carefully, it's not what he's saying, right? He's, I mean, he. I think he's drawing that life into the present a little bit more than she's maybe able to see. You know, that you have that life in you now. but because it's in him, right? And you're in him. But death is still this final enemy to be defeated. Like that hasn't been, that structure of the narrative hasn't been cut out, you know? And it seems that the significance here is connecting himself personally to the resurrection that she and many pious Jews of the time would have believed in anyway. But again, it's not solving the Lazarus problem here at all. You know, it's just, he will rise again, but you know, you probably were hopeful of that anyway. So it's connecting himself, not solving the Lazarus problem. Yeah, the news here is that he, his resurrection is actually through me. I'm the one who's going to raise him, and it's because he believed in me, not right, right, right? (laughs) because of his piety or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's spot on. So then it becomes like a almost a surprise then when you get to 38 through 44 that he's like, here he is, and and it's implied that the language of rising again or will live those because those future verbs would of course apply to an hour later. Those would also be in the future. Right. So, I mean, in some (laughs) sense, you know, in hindsight by him rising, I'm not even going to say it that way, him stepping forth from the tomb bound, um, unlike Jesus who will not be bound when, you know, like his stuff, his clothes are all there uh, Mm. folded up nicely. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, that's, I think men as a contrast to this in some manner, but, that when when Lazarus steps forth, that is a kind of maybe an initial fulfillment or a partial fulfillment of his statement, he will rise again hmm. or he will live, maybe. Which again for the grieving person is like, sweet, this is the this is it, right? Yeah. yeah. But of course, it's it's risky calling it a resurrection because it's not like you can go visit Lazarus in Bethany right now and he's two thousand years old, right? Well, you know, do you know the a, novel A Canticle for Leibowitz? No. Okay. It's a classic science fiction novel. And one of the characters is a very irritable Lazarus who has never (laughs) been able to die. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, there are, there are some theories and they're not implausible that the beloved disciple is Lazarus. Cause of course he's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved literally in this passage. Oh yeah. And he's clear. And the, the beloved disciple who shows up almost exclusively in Judea and is known to the high priest so he's a Judean disciple. And then the rumor that would make sense, the best evidence for that theory. I don't, I don't actually subscribe to the theory, but it's interesting one. And, and it helps you notice things like any theory can kind of help you see data you might miss because right, the right. standard theory has to interpret it differently. Right. That final line at the end of J- John 21, where Peter says, what about that guy? And he's like, if I want to keep him around until I return, what's that to you? And it says that there was a rumor among the brethren that he would live until the end. Well, that rumor makes a ton of sense for Lazarus. Yeah, totally. Huh. That's fun. I'd never heard that one. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I, 
I don't subscribe to the theory as much as it helps you see a pretty straightforward reading of that, that yeah. passage in 21, you know? Yeah. Uh, anywho. So, okay. So I think one of the questions then is, does Jesus right from the beginning intend to, let's say, resuscitate Lazarus for his grieving sisters? Because it seems like that's, once you get to the end, you're like, oh, that's what Jesus meant when he said that, you know, it's not toward death, but for the glory of God and or that the Son of Man might be glorified. But then, you know, there's this inconclusive, where Lazarus is concerned, resurrection conversation. And it's only after he has dealt with grieving Martha, grieving Mary, and grieving Judeans that Jesus himself finally really starts to feel it. And he groans in spirit, is troubled. And then he says, where did they put him? And he weeps and he goes to the tomb. And then he finally, it, it, this ends. All right. Saying, I relent. Let's do this. <laughs> they're out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, it seems like the story wants you to think that this is the plan all along. And at the same time, the plan doesn't like go into effect until Jesus himself has been deeply moved by grief, like all the people around him. Oh, I think that's spot on. That That's a perfect way of solving that tension. So I think you're right. The story wants us to see that this, and there are other, there's too many other moments in John where it says, and he knew what he was about to do, right? It's, it, he's, he's, <laughs> yeah, right. the presentation of Jesus is, is along those lines. He knows when a sign's coming and he leans into it, you know, yeah. but he's also delays. He did it with, I mean, if we're going to compare the first sign, if this is kind of the finale sign that leads to the, to the glorification of his death, you know, the opening sign, his mother asks him about the wine and he blows her off. Right. It's not yet come. Well, so. So, I mean, these delay tactics is a recurring theme. And and again, if he really does know what's about to happen and specifically he knows what's in the heart of other people, which mm. is said at the end of chapter two, that he doesn't need anybody to right. bear witness. He right, knows right. what's in someone. That means he knows that this is going to be the last straw that's going to lead to the final decision to, to kill him. You know, and so mm. like he's in this moment of – so that's why the opening is so important with their awareness that you might die – if we go back to Judea, this is going to be our last trip to Judea. Mm. And it's like, Jesus is like, yeah, I know. Like, and maybe <laughs> that's what, maybe that's actually the glory to, to be, I think more strictly speaking, this, again, we didn't read the whole chapter because you got to stop somewhere, but this is the last moment because it, everyone's so excited. It's, it's connected to the triumphal entry in chapter 12. Like, Everyone's so excited because they want it. They came to see Jesus, but also Lazarus. Everyone's talking about Lazarus' resurrection. It becomes this thing in the air. Right, 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 right. With the crowds and the belief in Jesus. And so I wonder if the way that this sickness that's not toward death, but for the glory of God, is that what it is? So that the glory will be revealed? Mm -hmm. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it? I mean, come on. Like, that's his cross and resurrection. That's his. Right. His Passover is what he's maybe talking about there. Mm. This is going right. to be the trigger event. This is going to be my big final sign. Right. I'm going to, because they even compared it to the blind man, which was the last one. Like, right. okay, you, th you think that's something. Let me do this, right? I'm going to, this is the big sign that's going to trigger the final sequence that leads to my, to my death, which is also not toward death, <laughs> but toward right. life. Right. 
So, okay, so suddenly that strikes me. So in the the synoptic sequence based in Mark, there is, I'm going to get them in, in, uh, in order, but it's early. It's in like four, five, and six. Jesus demonstrates his mastery over sickness, over the elements and walking on, stilling the storm, over demons, and ultimately over death, because that's when he he raises the dead girl. And so there are stories of Jesus resuscitating or resurrecting people in the synoptics, but it's not played for the same effect as it is in John. And so, but if we take a like a, a global look at where John is going, there still is this ratcheting up sequence of signs or miracles, and it also culminates in victory over death in the case of someone else. In both cases, it's extraordinary because like death is is the hardest thing. Like it's easier to still a storm than it is to defeat death, right? But um, obviously- Last enemy. This is the narrative form of Paul's claim. This is the last enemy. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So in some ways, rather than seeing this as either- prefiguring or the same thing as Jesus resurrection or a resurrection story per se. It's, it's doing the same work that that synoptic sequence is doing, but it's maybe drawing out its significance and displaying it over the whole course of the gospel with a kind of dramatic tension and growth that the synoptics for their own reasons don't need to, they, they need to establish that Jesus has this power early on and then go on to lots of other stuff. But for John, this is, this is the apex of the ministry. No, I think that's I, that's perfect. I, I've never heard it put better. I mean, and that's why you, and it's, you drew it out of me. I never thought of it till just now either. <laughs> well, and, it, and so then it, it even fits as to why then that those particular resuscitation scenes, along with a whole bunch of other signs, are extracted from the Jehohanine narrative mm. because he wants each sign to kind of unfold. Like you said, the way that chapter you know two through five or six work in like Matthew kind of paralleling almost like the plagues in, mm. you know, the 10 plagues are all kind of like oh, yeah, defeating yeah. each of the gods and it keeps getting higher and higher level stuff, you know, right. ending right, with right. death, right? That it's performing you know, the same narrative function, but just on over the course of the whole first half of the gospel. It's a perfect way of capturing the kind of difference and similarity. Mm. And of course, you're right that the functions actually, for us as the readers, the functions the same in the story world, the function is almost exactly the opposite because when, when he raises the little girl, it's in private and he says, don't tell anyone. It's and only Peter, James and John even get to see it. So you even have a kind of explanation as to why it would, that would have kind of stayed as like a little, you know, hidden kind right. of debated rumored thing. Whereas this Lazarus one's very public. You got Judeans Super seeing public. it. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's going to lead to, there's a whole debate about it. It leads to his triumphal entry. I mean, so there's really not even actually much of a conflict there because one is just performing just a totally different function mm. in the story world. Mm -hmm. For us as readers, it's the same function, right? right. But if you right. were in the crowds, then it's very different. Right. The drama plays out differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man, I'm having a blast. I love interpreting scripture with you. We're going it's super, so we're going super long. I mean, I love it going long, but let's well, take, come on. We had 44 verses. We could, uh, yeah, that's the short shrift. <laughs> let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters for a couple minutes. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Sarah Henlicky Wilson. Um, we're looking at John chapter 11, verses uh, 1 through 44, 45, although we, I guess, managed to discuss almost every chapter in the book of John. During <laughs> <laughs> so let's explore some sermon starters with the, with the proviso that it, it is actually very hard when you preach on John to not try to just preach the whole book. <laughs> 
<laughs> and sometimes you just let that happen. You pick a theme and you see how it connects, but at the same time, containing it in a little bit. Uh, yeah. Where would you, where would you want to go? Maybe you've preached on this, this chapter before, or maybe you will be uh, again soon. Any thoughts about, I mean, you've already hinted at some with the grief and faith dynamics. So let's, but let's, uh, let's explore it some more. What, uh, what would be some thoughts you have about where you might go with something like this as a preaching text in particular? So I, I know I can't call any specific examples to mind, but I'm pretty sure I've always heard this preached in a very triumphant kind of way. And I mean, clearly it is in some very real sense, a triumph that this is Jesus victorious over death. And it's often interpreted as like a, a proto resurrection or an actual resurrection or something like that. And now that seems to me, well, not not wrong, but not where I'd want to go with it. And in part, uh, if you don't mind my mentioning this, I, I published a novel last year, which is very much a novel about grief. And there's a funeral scene where a girl is listening to the presider read the gospel. And here's Martha say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's her brother who has died. And so she's like, why, why are you reading this story to me here in this funeral? Because my brother has died and Jesus isn't going to come and raise him up again. So like the, the grief of this, this beautiful, famous passage read at funerals meant to comfort can actually just like make the grief worse because we're not going to get what Mary and Martha got for Lazarus. But now having talked through this with you, I'm so struck by this as a story about grief and I'm not saying to the exclusion of it being a story about uh, eternal life or the resurrection or anything, but so much space is given to grief and grief's effect on faith and grief's effect on your relationship to Jesus and even to other people. And you know, that the happy ending is only at the end. And actually we don't get anyone's happy reaction. I mean, I guess it, it continues a little bit after that, but the story is it it ends with Lazarus coming back, but the meat and bones of the story is grief and faith and dialogue with each other. And, you know, who, who, like I said, who is not affected by that? Yeah. And I mean, it's not, it's not a happy ending. I think it's worth actually reading even this last little bit. Many, I mean, it is a happy ending in the end, but many of the Jews there, Judeans, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he had did, believed in him. We always got to pause on that. In John, belief's only the beginning, right? If you, he says, even to people who believe in him, you have to abide in my word and then you'll truly be my disciples. But just side note on that. And those who believed in him in chapter two, he didn't entrust himself to them. So, mm. but I'm not just, I'm just saying, don't put too much on that. Sometimes we can read kind of Pauline faith into <laughs> the word faith in John. It's complicated. Right. It's absolutely essential, but it's only the start. So many of those Judeans believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. So this is the Sanhedrin. This is the decision and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then Caiaphas gets up and accidentally predicts the death uh, for the sake of the people and goes on from there. It's all building up then to Passover. And so, yeah, 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Right. So, I mean, this is clearly, and again, we know that's good news, but not as it's happening. It's not. No, right? no. So and I think it ends actually on a down note if you read the whole chapter right. <laughs> that this yeah. is kind of the final moment. And you you can't help but 
it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't tell you how Mary and Martha reacts, you know, we don't get it. Go take a bath, (laughs) you know, lose him and and let him go. But, you know, what kind of a reunion is it? Is it, is it worse because they know that he will die again, you know, and that they've already gone through the grief and that the grief will be repeated or the fact that they're going to grieve Jesus soon too. I mean, it's interesting that it doesn't try to make the grief go away. You know, grief, grief has its word and Jesus just lets it stand. And even the the solution, in a sense, triggers an even worse thing. You know, again, if you want to go back to, you know, managing providence in a non-stoic way, uh, you know, like they're very unsatisfying ways to do that. Like, uh, again, another pop, not very pop culture right now, but there's this movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, and it shows two trajectories for her life. And the one that looks much worse all the way through is the one with the happy ending. And the one that goes really well is the one that ends disastrously. So, I mean, there's a certain it's a decent mental exercise to say like, okay, the bad thing has its place, but then it kind of makes all bad things into good things. And that's not really legit either. And it's so, again, I'm just so struck this time because I keep saying it over and over again. It just lets grief have its word and doesn't try to batten it down and say, oh, really it's okay because Lazarus lived again, or it's really okay that Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified because after all, he's going to rise again. Like it's just not trying to shut up grief by saying it'll all be okay. Even if it will be all okay, grief doesn't have to stop talking or not not say it's peace as a result. I even like you saying it's place, you know, grief is given its place because that fits with some of the literary features that we've highlighted, right? That that the the sign comes at the end of the story that that there's multiple dialogues building up that the grieving characters are given voice and they're given place. We get to see them move from one place to another. And I mean, maybe this would be too cute, but I could see, I mean, at least often a sermon starts for me. This doesn't always show up in the final form, but often the way there is to ask to start imagining some of the people in my care and saying like, where are they in the story? You know, Mm kind of like imagining, I mean, when I'm doing my own, kind of private reading that's I just ask where am I in the story right but then when I'm thinking about preaching I'm kind of okay where are my people in this story right and kind of imagining you know some in a place of Thomas who are kind of you know or you know these disciples where you have some that are like afraid of what's going to happen and Thomas who's kind of willing to you know risk it for Jesus right that's an opening moment whether we'd stay with that or not but then those who are grieving right even just the differentiation between Mary and Martha mm. and the, the subtle differences there actually also gives room for grief for grievings, plural, right? Griefs, mm. right? That it yeah. takes different forms and to give some permission along those lines, right? The famous line from the opening of uh, Anna Karenina, right? All, <laughs> all happy families are the same. All miserable families are miserable in their own unique way. Isn't that the line or something like that? Yeah. But, I think it's the other way around actually. Yeah. But, I, I, I don't know. But there's an insight to that, though, right? right that there's yeah, yeah. that there is a variety in misery, yeah. and that there's yeah. a place for respecting that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the more combative form in Martha, and the more, uh, as you've pointed out, pouty form in Mary. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. But to give a little of that permission, and to even explore that, you know, who are you resonating with? To ask sure. that of our congregation, you know, and and maybe you're not currently grieving, but you're someone else in your life is grieving. That's the Judeans here, right? You're, you're consoling someone else and you don't know how, you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. 
you don't well, know. Well, it's so to, interesting. The Judeans are like, couldn't he have done something? So it's like not their personal pain to the same degree, but they're just like, couldn't he have done something? And I mean, isn't that our question again and again, even if the grief is not over death, you know, when any disaster happens in your family or among friends or whatever, or to your, to an institution or enterprise you've committed your life to, you know, and just say like how, and and so often things that go wrong don't have a happy ending. There's no way to argue it. You know, I mean, I, I love the triumphant conclusion of Genesis in chapter 50, where Joseph can finally say, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And that really does happen. But it's not the only thing that happens. And some things, sometimes it's just evil. And then you have to say, couldn't you have done something? Why didn't you do something? You know, and there's, again, so much space given to asking that question, whether it's for yourself or for something, someone else that you care about. And it's it's their grief becomes second secondhand your own, but it still raises the real question for you. Yeah, and this is to come back to one little exegetical theological problem we addressed earlier. The possibility that Jesus has already in some way performed the miracle and it's just not yet revealed is actually kind of helpful because then, you know, to be able to say, okay, because we're on the other side of his resurrection now, but it's still not fully revealed. It's not, you know, revelation hasn't happened yet. The the fullness, mm. we're still waiting. He's at the right hand of the father. He's defeated death in himself. At the right hand of the father, death is defeated. But we're praying that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not yet like unveiled, unfolded, cracked open for us. Yeah. The already and the not yet. So yeah. here, because like, forty-one, maybe. he says, "Father, I thank you that you have heard me." Aris tense. Ah. Ah. When did he ask? Did he? When? When was that? Was that on the right. walk over? Was that in the moment right. of anger? We don't know really when the moment is. I think it's perhaps intentionally ambiguous. Um, All right, let me build on that. This is this yeah. is what this probably doesn't stand up, but let's try it. In verse thirty-one, Mary quickly arose, aneste, and came out. And that's when, because, because Martha has got, went, gone to get her. And then she comes out and she falls at Jesus' feet and says, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. If we take the verb significant, she arose, aneste, then just the news that Jesus has come to her is what causes Mary to rise again. Her grief is not gone. Her complaint is not gone. She's still going to cry. And yet maybe she has already risen in some real sense, because Jesus has come to her and now she's coming out to him. Can we can we push it that far? Let's test it. So there is a passage back in John 5 where he says, there a time is coming. I got to find it. Uh, amen, amen, I tell you, um, this is John 5, 25, that an hour is coming and now is when the dead, Necroy, will hear the voice of, of the son of God. <laughs> this is all happening in this passage. And those who hear will live. So let me go a little earlier. Where is it? And then a little later, he says, a time is coming. Where is it? An hour is coming when all those in their graves and there he noticed he says an hour is coming, but he doesn't add the And now is. Mm. So when you have the and now is that's live. So you already mm. start to live now. You don't have to wait mm. for eternity to live. Eternal life starts now doesn't end in the now, but, um, and then a few verses later, an hour is coming when all those in their tombs will hear his voice and side note, the 
he is calling for you. Verse 28 is, is the same phone. It's the same. He's voicing you. Right. Mm, right. 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 You. So just, Oh my gosh, this is too good. I love John. <laughs> uh, and they will come forth different verb though. though yeah. They will come forth. Where is it? Out of their graves. I thought it said, yeah, those in their graves will hear his voice and they will come forward. Those who have done good unto a resurrection of life and those who have practiced evil unto a resurrection of, of, of condemnation. So it's not the, it's not the, but it's honest, anastasis, you know, the same, you know, so, I mean, I just, the, the language of rising and coming forth is like pretty close uh, in verse 31. And the idea that she's already, you know, an hour is coming and now is when you'll hear his voice. And if you believe you'll live and now an hour is coming that isn't yet now (laughs) when, you know, when you'll, when you'll come out of your tombs and rise unto eternal life, right? That's still, we're still waiting for that, but. Okay. In 1128, I don't have the Greek handy. I, I just have my translation. The teacher is at hand and calls for you. What's the verb for calls there? Is that phone? Phone, phone say, yeah. Phone calls. And you. that's what you just read from five. Yeah. 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 So like in a sense, so here's voice. Mm-hmm. Jesus is calling Mary out of the tomb of her grief. Maybe that's why she's yes. sitting in the house. She's in a tomb. Oh, that's cool. Yes. We got it. There's a sermon there now. Oh my gosh, we got a sermon. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> if any of you listeners have been pressing on for over an hour now with us, and if you can't make if you can't build a sermon out of that, then <laughs> you would have turned off a long time ago. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. But no, I think I think there's something there. Yeah, calling out of the grief, but then recognizing the grief's not over, and he himself participates in the grief. Mm-hmm. He's crying out, and even that that crying out in verse 33, when Jesus weeps, that maybe is the moment of him of of the Father hearing him that he's thankful for. Mm-hmm. Is that that's oh. his moment, right? That's he's. It's not okay, now I'm sad and then I'm going to do something about it. It's like, no, yeah. this is me getting angry at death and, and asking. Maybe. Again, we can't pinpoint it, and I think it's intentionally not I, pinpointing it for us. I don't know. I just got goosebumps when you said that the, the father having heard him was having heard him weep. Yeah. That That is amazing. And then because, like you say, Jesus never says, rise up, Lazarus. He only says, come out, Lazarus. So, or not even come out, just out, out of there, hither. <laughs> Because in a so, certain yeah. sense, the Father is the one giving the resurrection life. Yeah. It's, it's the it's the Word made flesh, Jesus, who is the voice that calls us out. Yeah. Out of out of the death, out of the tomb that we're in, out of the living tombs that we're in. You know. Yeah, that'll preach. Why not? That'll preach. <laughs> hey, thanks, Sarah. I always have a blast studying the Word with you. You're welcome. It's been fantastic. I loved it. Yeah. Well, thanks uh, to you, of course. Thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to Todd uh, Bouchong and uh, Eric Fisher for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without you guys. Thanks uh, to Tom and Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks to our supporters. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways there that you can support the show. And uh, with that said, say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye. <laughs>